This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. Welcome back to the Earn Your Edge podcast. I'm Corey Lumberg from Altus Performance, and this week we are fulfilling a request that we have had from a few listeners. We've had some people reach out and ask that we put together a bit of a highlights episode with all of our favorite edge earners from the players that we have had on in the last year. And we thought that was a pretty good idea. We hear people that are new to the podcast ask us, you know, where should we start? What are our favorite episodes? The ones that are the most impactful? And it's really hard for us to point out just one of those. We also realize that the number of listeners that we have now has grown quite a bit from the beginning. Some of our favorite interviews happened quite early on. Our our first episode was with Jordan Spieth. We had Eddie Pepperell very early on, Kramer Hickok, who shares my all-time favorite story of all the episodes, Andre Pavan, Soyeon Yu, Bo Hosser, Bryson DeChambeau. In just a short amount of time, we've had some incredible players share their experience and their wisdom with us. And for the purposes of making it easier to share and having all of those best clips in one place, Cordy, our producer, compiled them all into this episode. We like the idea a lot, so we'll also do something similar with all the great coaches that we've had on. We'll aggregate all that coaching wisdom from Butch, Claude Harmon, Mark Blackburn, George Gankus, and others. So to those of you who asked, here is the players episode. For for those of you who have recently started listening to the show, here's all the good stuff that you missed. We hope you'll enjoy and maybe pass it along to someone else who you know will appreciate and benefit from the message. So sit back and enjoy this special all-star episode of the Earn Your Edge podcast. First up is an excerpt from our conversation with three-time major winner Jordan Spieth, and this is a part of our interview that we haven't released in previous episodes. Jordan provides a bit of insight on how he attacks a golf course, what his prep before an event looks like, and it's a really good look at what the best players in the world are considering from a tactics and strategic perspective. Being a nerd of the game, just loving the game enough to to be constantly thinking about it. I mean, I'll be in bed watching TV and in my mind, I'm like, before I turn it around and in my mind, I'm like, okay, when the pin's stuck here, this is kind of the way to play the hole. And, you know, I just like the artistry of, of the golf hole and the way that it's supposed to be played and what ball flight you need to work. It's understanding my own game to a T. I know when I'm playing a fade that week where I'm most likely going to miss it and what I can do to, to make sure that I'm executing. It's not all this, like, where am I going to miss thing that I'm thinking it's, when you're thinking tactically, you have to think about where you're going to miss. When I'm over the shot, I believe that I'm going to pull the shot off exactly where I need to, but I'm lined up to targets with ball flights that I'm protected on my misses. If you just ask me right now, okay, here's a hole, and you just describe the hole for me, I'll say, where's the pin? And you play the hole backwards. And that's something that Tiger's talked about a lot that not a lot of people do. A lot of people stand on the tee and they hit their shot. I know where the pin is on that hole on every single hole that I play on the PJ Tour before I tee off on that tee box. Yeah. Par five, dog leg, you can't see the green. I know where the pin is. And so I understand where my approach shots need to be hit from to have an opportunity to have the best chance to make a better score than somebody else. And have you defined areas around green complexes that say, okay, I know when I have this pin, this is the area that is yes. a is, is a Yes. Yeah. That's why. Actually, a lot of the time on the PGA Tour, short-sided is a, is an uphill 
opportunity. Right. And that's, that's what gets tricky is when you actually need to fire at tucked pins and even maybe miss the green versus being uncertain, depending on where you are, especially at Augusta, when there's not much rough and you can have just an easy pitch somewhere versus you're now dealing with two mounds because somebody wanted to make sure they were on the green. Well, off the green sometimes is definitely better on harder holes. Number 11 at Augusta, you know, sometimes missing the green in the right spot is, well, 11, if you can hit the green, you hit the green. But there are certain holes like that, you know, 16 is a good example at Augusta. You need to fire at those right pins because those putts from the left side, especially the front right pin, is such a hard pin. I've missed it in that right area that when I've gone at it, either in the front bunker or just right of the green, and made par all day. And I've and I've guys three putt from because when they try and fade it in there, I work a draw into that pin. When guys try and fade it in there and they bail on not wanting to miss the green to the right, and therefore they they smash a straight one and it goes long and left. You're now left the the pins on this bowed slope. It's on this knobbed slope where it's impossible from long left, nearly impossible for you to get the ball within three feet because it's going to get to the crest and you're either going to have too much speed. It's going to go on the backside of it and you're going to have a seven footer that's uphill right to left, or it's not going to have enough. Most of the time they're going to too hard, but every once in a while they're going to try and get cute and it's not going to have enough and it's going to fall short. And now you've got this bowed left to right putt that has to be perfect. That's similar to putts that you have to the Sunday pin on number three that are nearly impossible to make from anywhere right. You have to go at the hole and work a fade from left of the pin because long left's okay. It's these plays in your head where I recognize where the best chance to score the best comes from. So now I'm over the ball playing a draw to this pin on 16 of Augusta, the front right pin. I've got an eight iron out and I'm lined up at the right edge of the green to work a draw. I know that my miss is gonna hold straight or even a little right, maybe short. I can commit to that shot a lot easier having lined up for what ball flight I want, having played that and recognized what the hole is like, that that commitment normally allows me to hit the ball actually online at the target versus the uncertainty of of where it is. So it leads to so much more commitment in this game. I, I keep on talking about, and I mention it, you know, I miss it in the right place. Like my game does not consist around missing it, but tactically planning for where it could miss being an advantage versus a miss the other side brings in this extra commitment into the shot that is all I need because I'm a good enough player to be able to hit any shot I want to these pins with any club at any distance. So I believe in myself and the ability, but I've now given myself this room for error that just brings any extra commitment into it. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. Next up is Kramer Hickok, and this is probably the one episode that people bring up to me the most, and in particular, this excerpt of our conversation. Kramer provides a really good jolt of inspiration through, of all things, a Chinese parable, and that's something that he has used as a way to get through some challenging moments on the golf course. I was one ahead to start the day, and three shots in front of Sammy Bay, who was third place. So my mentality going in was that I was playing a match play event against Steven Yeager, which is the ignorance and the inexperience of me being in that position. Three shots is not nearly enough to do that. And it's way too early in the round. So I got away from what I'd normally do in playing well as I was playing against someone else instead of playing against myself in the golf course. So 
I bogeyed the first two holes and have this wake up call. And as I'm walking, I just three putted from eight feet to go, you know, from lean by one on the second hole to now in a tie for third because Hunter Mayen was playing well. And, and right as I walked off the green, I said, you know, what would the farmer say? And, you know, my caddy and I had been using this, this saying for the last four or five events. And basically it's, it's the story of a, of a Chinese farmer. It's an old parable. This one's awesome. And it's, it's helped me countless times. And I actually have a great story of not only how it helped me this week, but how it helped me in the past, ultimately secure my PJ tour card. And the story goes like this is, you know, there's a Chinese farmer and he had one son and one horse. And one night a storm came through and, and blew open the door to where the horse's stable was and a horse ran away. The neighbors came over and said, oh, what bad luck you have. First, you were nearly broke, and now you're absolutely desolate. You have absolutely nothing. And the farmer said, it is neither good nor bad. So that night, the farmer leaves the, the horse's gate open, and next morning comes back with a bunch of his friends. Now the farmer has seven or eight horses. Neighbors come over and said, oh, what good fortune you had. First, you had nothing, and now you have absolutely everything. You're the richest man around. And the farmer said, it is neither good nor bad. Well, the farmer's one and only son the following day was so excited to see all the horses, he got on one of the horses and the horse bucked him off and he broke his leg. Neighbors come over again and say, oh, what bad luck you have. And the farmer said, it is neither good nor bad. And the final day, the king and his army are coming through and picking up all the young, able-bodied children and teenagers to go find a soon, in a war that they were soon to die. And because the farmer's son had broke his leg, they didn't pick him to go to find a war. So what is good and what is bad. And what I found out is there's often what you perceive to be good. There's such a paradox into what it actually is. So I told myself in that round that, okay, we bogeyed the first two holes. Typically, I would say this is bad. I'm playing bad. Instead, I said, this woke me up. It was the best thing that could ever happen to me. Instead, it's, it's, I had the mindset now, I had to restart everything. I said, okay, what do we do when we play well? I play against myself. I play against the golf course. I'm two over par. How are we going to get it back to even? I don't want to say, okay, I'm going to get it back to four or five under because that, that's a goal that seems too far-fetched and maybe not obtainable. I said, let's get a small goal and let's go after it. So let's get it back to even. And Okay. How am I going to do that? Well, it's each shot, one shot at a time. Let's play against myself, which is, okay, let's stay patient. Let's stay in the zone. Let's not get too aggressive and try and make a birdie. Let's play against the hole which is the golf course, and let's play the hole backwards. Let's play this side of the fairway. Let's keep ourselves below the hole. And I don't want to look up to any par fives and say, okay, that's, that's a birdie hole. That's, that's down the road. I want to stay in the moment. And let's get two back, okay? So I birdie the hardest hole, which yeah. would never have even thought. That's just a bonus. Yeah, right. Then I birdie eight, so I get back to even. Now the goal is, all right, let's get it to two under. Okay, so I birdie. So I get a birdie 10. And a par 11 and birdie 12. So now I'm two. I said, let's get to four. Okay, so those small goals make my mind realize it's very obtainable. But I'm not saying there's par five coming up or there's short par four. Let's go one shot at a time and figure it out. But the greatest part about that parable is goes back to when I secured my PJ Tour card for the first time. Going in the week, I was T28 on the money list and top 25 gets your card. And the final round, I was two back and tied for second. I had to finish solo third or better in order to get my card. And I just shot even on the front nine and was three back or something going in the back. I just birdied 10. So I was making a little bit of a move and I thought I had to shoot 300 or better on the back nine. So 11, 
is one of the hardest holes out on the golf course. It's, I hit a beautiful drive. I hit a great four on a 30 feet, ran the putt by six feet and missed it coming back. So I just bogeyed the hole, gave back a lot of momentum. And walking off the green, I said, what would the farmer say? My caddy said, you know, it's neither good nor bad. Well, the following hole, this is great. They had just moved the tee up 30 yards and it's a dog light right par four. The pin is right on the front of the green, about four paces on and it's water short. And I just watched Sam Burns. Well, first of all, I was going to hit last or I was going to hit first. Okay. I was going to hit first, but instead, because I, I bogeyed the hole before, I was now hitting last. So I watched Sam Burns, who I know hits it 20 yards by me, and Connor Godsey hit it 20 yards, but they both hit driver and they landed about 20 yards over the pin, rolled the back of the green. I now knew that driver was absolutely perfect club. I can make a committed, confident swing that I can hit this thing up there on the green. And if I would have gone first, I would have probably laid up or made an uncommitted swing. And because I dropped a shot on the hole before by making bogey, I was able to hit last, make a committed swing. I hit driver up to eight feet, make eagle, birdie the next, par the next, and eagle the next. So I go four under through four holes. I lost one shot in order to pick up four. What would the farmers say? One of the most common questions that we get in our mailbags is what do the best players in the world think about over the ball? And next up, the always fascinating and thought-provoking Bryson DeChambeau gives us a little peek inside his mind over a shot, how he integrates technical changes out on the golf course, and how that plays into his decision-making during a round. You're too technical if you don't understand the subject. So if you understood the subject, it wouldn't create a neurological issue in your brain. Okay, so for example, if I get over a shot and I'm thinking of something technical and it's in, in a static position, right? And I'm thinking about it, I'm going, okay, this is what's going to create this club-based alignment, blah, blah, blah. I'll get over it. And then, it, or once it theoretically makes sense, once it goes into my brain and says, this makes sense in creating a more stable space or whatever I'm trying to create at that point in time, then it clicks and I'm done with it. And I focus on it, but it's like that one swing thought that you have that's like, oh, that, that's what makes me hit it good. That's exactly what it goes back to. But it has to make sense theoretically and prove experimentally over time that it works before I can go forward with it. If you give a kid information and they're like, man, I just can't get it. I can't get it. This is just not working. Well, it's probably not right relative to their muscle build, structure build, and how they like to produce force, how they like to align the club face. So I think if we can correctly synthesize that down, you start at a theoretical level, then you apply through active practice this... Yeah. Well-educated trial and error process of auditioning fields, if you will. Yeah. Synthesizing it down to a simple field that then allows you to play with whatever it is that aspect you're trying to integrate into your movement pattern, correct? Right. So when I hit a golf shot, I'm not thinking about any external stimuli. The only input I have is from the lie, how I've previously assessed the shot. So, so I'll go back. I'll start with how I assess the shot and exactly what shot I need. All right. So when I see a shot, I'm, I go, okay, this is what I need to have the best statistical advantage that I can possibly have. Now I move back and look, okay, what lie do I have? So now how do I make that shot happen? What things do I need to do in my body to make it happen? So it's like I'm building the machine piece by piece. And so once I get over the ball, every little piece is then aligned and I've predicated exactly what my body needs to do neurologically. And so I have like this space in my brain, in my mind, this black space of of force input to my to the club that I've created over time. And so I can literally close my eyes 
and swing and hit shots with no problem because that's how I've literally trained. And so, you know, some people like, you know, for example, you know, Tiger maybe does it with his hands, right? He, he controls his flight and trajectory by his, his hands and he's, he feels it with his hands and he has to look at the target and go, oh, that's what creates that shot. Or Jack Nicholas, who can look at a shot and see an envisioned shot and then his body react to that. Well, I'm a guy that builds it in my brain. I store that neurological sensation or feel in my brain, and then I produce the mechanics. Yeah, you're spot on. In fact, there's a good body of research centered around mirror neurons, and it kind of dovetails nicely into what you just described. The process of visualization is not fully visual. It's imaginative and it's kinesthetic, and you need to find your best path to pull out those swings that you've made time and time again. I want to toss back real quick to Corey because he had a question on that. I wanted to unpack a little bit more that decision-making process because I think the thing that that from an observational perspective, when you guys get it going and going really low and you're making seven to eight birdies yeah. around, you're shooting really deep, it seems like, man, they've, they've got the pedal to the metal full on. So I'm going to toss it to Corey here. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you brought up a little bit as you talked about kind of unpacking lies, and I know that how you are unpacking a golf course is providing you an edge. You would agree with that, yes? Yes, it absolutely is. Yeah, so I'm just curious of how maybe that has evolved in the last year, just that decision-making process and, and tactically, you know, how you're you're doubling down or leveraging that tactical intelligence, that golf IQ that you've had, and, yeah. and whether or not that's changed in the last little bit, especially as you, as you talk about how you feel like you've you found some stability in your pattern and your technique that maybe allows you to attack a golf course in a different way, especially when you were feeling it in the playoffs. I'm sure that you're looking at it differently than maybe yeah. you have before, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm just, just curious if that's evolved at all. Yeah, I'd say my knowledge of the golf course and golf conditions, the variables that affect the golf ball, has definitely evolved in a positive way over the last year and a half. And it started the uh, year I won the John Deere in 2017. Yeah, 20, no, no, 2016. I forget. It's been a while. But um, essentially, when I when I found out some things that week, I was like, man, I got to start learning more about the golf course so that I can consistently reproduce these results. Every once in a while, I hit a shot that I thought was perfect, and it land 10 yards long. And I'm going, what did I miss? I had the same ball speed. I had the same everything. You know, we put the flight scope down and be like, okay, this is the same ball speed. What are we missing here? And I'd sit there literally for 15 minutes talking to Tim about what possibly could it be that makes it go that that makes it go that that far. Why is there this discrepancy in our in our uh, adjustment for numbers? And so from from that issue, from those issues, every single time when I hit a shot, I'm like, man, that's perfect. It's got the perfect ball speed, perfect spin rate, perfect angle of descent, launch angle, and it goes a different distance. We literally will sit back and say, stop, we're not going any farther until we understand this because this is a unique situation. And so we would go through every single variable, whether it was uphill, downhill, lie, the uphill, you know, plus, it was, you know, let's say it's plus 10, right? But you got this uphill adjustment of effectively uh, only five yards because you're hitting a wedge because the angle of descent is so high, it doesn't affect how far it plays out. You know, so you got these, these variables that, I'm giving you a couple of little nuggets there, but those are very, very impactful things. Barometric pressure. I mean, the ball flies differently in every place, you know, and whether you like it or not, it's affecting your uh, proximity to the hole. It just is. And so if we can calibrate that to a higher potential, I'm going to hit it closer to the hole every single time. And if I do that, I'm going to make more putts.
Andrea Pavan is a European tour player that we work with at Altus, and in 2018, he rose over a thousand spots in the official world golf ranking, eventually breaking into the top 100 in the world. And anytime someone experienced that kind of breakthrough and performance, we're always curious of how, what was different, and what can we learn from their rise. And here, Andrea speaks to some of the edge earners that he contributes to his recent success. To differentiate your success this year from previous years, What's changed from a skill standpoint, from a physical skill standpoint, and how radically or how much do you think it's changed to produce the results you've got this year? I think the skill part has improved, but if we go then analyze it in depth, it's not as big as the result probably show it. I mean, it's something that Corey and I've been working. It's a it seems to be the the same thing that we've been working for a while now. It's been over a year. And we're still working on the same thing. It's not like it is getting, it's probably one of my tendencies. So we try to keep it under control. And as I play more, it gets a little, a little way. So then we have to just keep an eye on it. So it seems like it, it's good to know that it's one thing that it's like the, the most important part of what I'm working on, especially it's a pretty much a transition from the, the top of the back swing and into the downswing. So the way my, my right hip moves, uh, and, uh, it has improved. And, but I think there's more to it. There's the, the preparation into the tournament that with Corey, we, we really worked on it. And the way I approach each tournament in a way that I know that sometimes I'm going to have my A game and I can be aggressive. And sometimes I'm not. Corey helped me a lot understand that, like, how to play the golf course and how to approach different situations in a way that before in the past, I would be uh, maybe a little bit, I would try too hard to hit the perfect shot instead of just accepting to get it somewhere on the right side of the, of the tee, which, uh, tee shots are, let's say my, uh, Achilles heel. So, and then from there, play to my strength. Which is your iron play. My iron and then uh, my short game is pretty good and putting fluctuates, I think, with every player. So. Sure, sure. Yeah, a little bit. It's uh, don't get in my own way. Just don't try to force the things. And there are going to be weeks where I'm going to be playing well and I can force and be more aggressive and weeks that it's not. So I think that's that's been really helpful, especially the difference between the Challenge Tour and the European Tour. And I think it's similar from the web.com to the PGA Tour. It's uh, off the tee. You just have more rough and the courses are longer. So you really need to be, to be <laughs> you either play really well or you have to be good in, uh, in your course management when you don't have your best stuff. Next up is Soyeon Yu, and here Soyeon speaks to something that we talk about a lot at Altus, moving good to great and then great to world-class. Soyeon was already great, already won plenty of tournaments, majors, but she continued to make improvements and find ways to continue to earn an edge and move great to world-class, and those efforts eventually landed her at number one in the world. And here is Soyeon's account of how and why she went about continuing to push forward. I still remember I was hitting the golf with um, the 2015 CME uh, Globe Championship, which is our very last tournament of the year. And then I, maybe I hit a driver like 20 yards shorter than what I normally hit it. And then uh, I 
couldn't really feel like anything about my swing. I really didn't know about like what's going on with my swing. And then there was a time I thought it's like, you know what? I probably need to do something else. I, you know, I probably need to, like, you know, in be describe like reset my golf. Yeah. But I know that was kind of very sensitive time because 2016 was, you know, they um, Brazil hosted the Olympic, and then that's one of the my, you know, biggest goal. You know, since um, IOC announced um, golf gonna be in the game in 2016, but I knew I, you know, had to do something else to improve myself. That's why I decided to, you know, working with, you know, someone someone new, and then, um, you know, I met you. So I started to, I mean, you know, change the swing, and then. A lot of people sort of said like, what are you doing? Why are you changing your swing? You know, because back then I was on the like team for Olympics. So a lot of people said it's, you know, so risky. You know, if you're doing what you did, you know, you could have make um, Olympic team. Why are you doing something else? So I told them to like, you know, playing Olympic, it's going to be awesome. And then that's definitely one of the, my goal. But, you know, Olympic is not my final goal. You know, I want to be number one in the world someday. And then I really feel like I need to do something else to make myself to put that, that position. So I just trusted my decision. But um, it was really tough to um, stick to what I decided because like when everybody around me just speaking about like, you're going to fail, you know, it's going to be so tough. It's really, really hard to trust it. But I knew, you know, you and I just talk about the golf swing a lot. Then we discussed a lot. And then I know what I was going to do with you. And then I was seeing you maybe like two or three times a week when every time when I was in, um, in Dallas. Um, so I was really able to trust myself. Yeah, committed to it. I think for sure because of those time, I was able to become a number one in the world. Another one of my favorite conversations was with Bo Hostler, and in this excerpt, Bo speaks to the importance of his college experience at the University of Texas and his development and how his training changed, the goals that he set to push him towards eventual success on the PGA Tour. I want to be the best driver of the ball in college golf because my driving was, I was hitting it all over the place. And I said, you know, that I wasn't going to be the longest. I didn't, I hit it shorter then now than I even do now. So, I said, I want to be the best driver of the ball, meaning I'm going to get the ball in play and give myself a chance on pretty much every hole. And I'm going to do whatever that takes. That means me go down on the golf course and take the shag bag and, you know, hit draws off the third hole at UT Golf Club, which is like the biggest nightmare tee shot in the world or whatever it is, I'm going to do it. So I also told them that I wanted to be the best wedge player in college golf. So I was going to get fully committed. We had just gotten Pro V's on the range and we had just gotten... No, on the driving range at UT. It used to be these Nike range balls, and they were terrible. And they weren't, you can, it was kind of the same deal I was talking about when I grew up. It's like, I can't get effective practice in because this ball with no dimples is going crooked, and I hit it pure. So, you know, we were all over Coach Fields to get that done. He raised the money, got it done. And we also got a track man, another donation from, I mean, we've had unbelievable, I'm, I'm some of the best in the world there. A lot of which are members here, by the way. And um, we got a track man. I said, okay, I'm going to grind on this track man. I'm going to normalize all my numbers so that I'm consistent. And I'm going to dial in my wedges. So what, is a, what does a session look like? So I set up these wedge tests so you can set up the, um, the track man basically for, I think it's into the performance center or whatever, set up a test. So I was basically saying, okay, call my test. Uh, I think it was maybe 20 balls. I'm going to say I'm going to have five that are random number between... Uh, 50 and 70 
I'm going to have five that are between 70 and 90. I'm going to have five that are between 90 and 115. I'm going to have five balls between 115 and 135 or something like that. I think it's, I still have the same pretty much test. And you're still doing that? Yeah, yeah. And I did that. And like I said, it was just normalized carry. So I was exclusively working on carry distances because conditions change and I need to be able to hit the number. And um, so I did that. That was one of my process goals. And then, uh, you know, I played another tournament. So Coach Fields, my last, I think, two years, walked with me on the golf course exclusively in every round. Uh, and then he would see every shot, and we'd discuss a lot. And then after every tournament, we'd sit in his office for 45 minutes and talk about what I did good, what I needed to do better, what can I do to get better at whatever we're talking about. And so, you know, we had talked so much about those process goals, and I said, I want to be the best wedge player in golf, in college golf. Well, I am pretty confident in saying that I was by the end of the year. We played a tournament in Augusta at Forest, Forest Hills, I think. The last hole is this like 310-yard par four, but it's like OB is like right up on the green. So it's like, I'm, I'm tied for the lead. I'm going to lay this up. Hit five iron down there. I have 105 yards to this back pin. And I'm like getting the number. I'm like, this is exactly, exactly what I've been working for i mean literally exactly i mean this is the exact shot i've been waiting for put me under the gun and let me see if i can hit my freaking number and i fly this thing a foot past the hole and it goes i had a great shot the greens were firm it went to 12 feet but the pin was tucked i mean you couldn't land it short of the hole really 12 feet behind the hole make the putt win the tournament yeah it's funny that that's one of the those common everybody has a story like that to where there's some kind of practice scenario that exists where they're training in a way that creates this trust and we we actually talked about it a couple of episodes ago trust training to where they're anchoring to these moments in training to where this is it and i know i have complete certainty that i have what it takes and yeah. that's a function of really really effective practice yeah and the enjoyment out of that was not even yeah, I, I really enjoyed making birdie the win the last hole in front of 100 people. That was awesome. But the enjoyment for me was the fact that I recognized before I even hit the shot that this is literally exactly what I've been practicing for. This is what I've been grinding hours for, for this opportunity. Like it doesn't, yeah, you're, you, it's helping me to hit the numbers on round one and hole seven. I mean, that's, it feels good to do that. But when it's like, I need to hit the shot to win the tournament and I know that, it's not like I didn't know where I was. I'm the last group. I know exactly where I'm at. They got the leaderboard on the phone. I'm like, where am I at? He's like, you're tired for the lead. I'm like, all right, I'm make birdie right here. We win the tournament. And I did it. So that just made me feel really good. Awesome. Because I don't think it's fair with it. Going back to the process versus results goals, in my opinion, it's just like, if you're doing the necessary things, how can you consider anything a failure, right? Golf is a peaks and valley game for everybody. You know, you're going to have years where you kill it and you're going to have years where you're trying to grind out top tens. I mean, it's just a hard game. One of the favorite questions that we like to ask players is what do people waste time on that they shouldn't? And as expected, we got a very thoughtful and candid response from the one and only Eddie Pepperell. You've got someone else who wants to be the next Eddie Pepperell or the next Lori Cantor. They're aspiring to be a European tour player. You have to give them advice. They have to get better, but only by subtraction. So they have to take something away from what they do to get better. Yeah, so they have to improve by subtraction. So you, you can't add to it. You can't say, hey, you need to start doing this. You say, you know what? You're, what you're doing right here, that's worthless. Stop doing that. 
And this is interesting because when people have this microphone in front of them, a lot of the answers that we hear are, okay, don't worry about technique. But now we've spent, you know, an hour talking about the importance of form and how that's been important for you and how that, you know, creates all these other things. So this should be an interesting answer. You have to get someone better by subtraction. What do you take away? So I would say to that guy or girl, you know, all those little one percent, one percentile things that you're working on, we'll add them all up and they might equate to, I don't know, 20 to 40 percent and throw them in the fucking bin. And you know, that first 60 percent, this is the core of golf. Just get really good at that. You're better off being awesome at that first 60 percent than average at that first 60 percent, but great at the other 40. Because that, well, actually it's bigger than 60 percent. You know, the game of golf and, and history has proven this is so simple. The top, you know, the first 80, 90 percent, there is definitely this infatuation with, you know, the one percent. I'll do these little tiny little things you know i don't know what it's called you know what it's right these type of marginal gains you know and that's fine once you've got the first 80 percent in place but in i can tell you i don't even think the world's top 10 have got that first 80 percent in place it's everything that first 80 percent is 100 percent it's 100 percent of the game forget the marginal gain stuff just get rid oh but what is it in the game right well it's just your basics it's your putting you know and okay you could you could you could nail all these things down within that you know you could subdivide or whatever but you know it's a simple it's just the simple parts of the game you know just get just learn to hit the ball straighter learn to strike the ball better learn to putt a bit better learn to get a little better on the short game stuff you know you don't need to go into all the details of toe down chip shots or draw chip shots or all these tiny minute shots you know I, I'm honestly not a believer in that look at Martin Keimer he got to world number one playing the most one dimensional game you could ever find on the planet you're really good doing it one way Absolutely. Trevor Ullman won the Masters doing it, and then he changes, and look what happens. I mean, there are so many examples of that. Just nail that. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. 